Let's go to the Lord. I want to uh, ask God to speak, with, speak to us and meet with us through His Word. And so we need help with that. We need help to lean in and to be addressed by God. Let's go to Him and pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank you, God, that you hadn't left us without light, wisdom. God, we long to see you and all of your attributes, Lord, and worship you. We long for that. And God, you graciously have given us your word that we might see. But God, we also know that we must pray. Lord, open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your law. Father, there's things in this passage of Scripture about you that the world hates. And God, I pray that you would make us like the man who wrote that psalm, the rivers of water would run down from our eyes because people have forsaken your law. Lord, there's things here in your law and your word that the world hates about you. But Lord, we love you. And as we just sang to you a moment ago, Lord, we love you. And we want to exalt you, God, in all of your glorious attributes, God. Even in places... As we allow our minds to move into realms, God, that we can't fully grasp. God, we want to worship you right there, too. So help us, please, Lord. Move us, God. God, there's truth here about, about your justice and about eternal punishment. And God, if there's any here today... And God, you know the hearts of men. If there's any here today that don't know you, Lord. God, I pray that the fear of you. God, we read in your word that the fear of God fell upon a group of people, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that the fear of you would fall over us today. And that those that don't know you, Lord, as they hear these things in your word, that they would get a glimpse of you. And oh, Lord, that they would turn to you. Oh, God, that you would save their souls. Lord, help us this morning. Please be with us by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we're in Genesis 19. We're going to get uh, verse 1 through 29. God willing, we're going to try to get that in this morning. Um, before we actually read the passage, I just want to ask a few uh, context questions that should help orient us as to where we are in the book of Genesis right now. First question is this. What is Sodom and Gomorrah. What is Sodom and Gomorrah? And it's two cities that are full of rampant evil that God intends to destroy. And we're going to read about the destruction of these two evil cities today. It's a very evil place. We can, really, we can literally go back to Genesis 13 when the, the man named Lot first decided that he was going to go live near Sodom. 
We can go read about that. And even back then in Genesis 13, God was conditioning, conditioning us to see that this city, these cities were full of wicked and evil people doing wicked and evil things. You can read that in Genesis 13, 13. Uh, last week we're in Genesis 18 where we saw God actually say that this is a evil group of people that he's about to pour out his wrath on. He's about to destroy and Abraham begins to intercede on behalf of the people of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. So Sodom and Gomorrah, what was it like? What was Sodom and Gomorrah like? And let's begin with the sin the sin that they're most famous for or most infamous for, which would be homosexuality. Now, we're going to see this sin rampant as we read through Genesis 19. We're going to see the sin of homosexuality rampant in these in these people here. When we see the book of Jude in Jude uh, verse seven, Jude seven, as Jude thinks back on Sodom and Gomorrah, we see him mentioning these people that are full of sexual immorality and who go after strange flesh. And so the idea there is he's recognizing the sin, the most, the sin that Sodom is the most infamous for, homosexuality in this place. Now, since our culture is full of confusion over this sin of homosexuality, since that's the case, I want to make sure that we walk away being really clear about what God's word says about this issue. God's word is not hazy about it. It's very, very clear what God's word says about the sin of homosexuality. So let me just read a few verses to you. Okay, you don't have to flip there. Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 20 says this. Much clarity here. And you shall not. Excuse me. It's 18 verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So imagine that command to the men. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Let me give you one in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1. Again, you don't have to flip there. I just want us to walk away in the midst of a culture that has a lot of confusion. That the Bible is not confused about this issue. Romans chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. It says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Let me read one more and it's my favorite. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9, it's my favorite because it shows the redemption that can come to a soul that walks in this sin just like any sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. There it is. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, I love this, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We have friends here that that could be said about that. You too were once 
walking and practicing homosexuality, but you've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ who laid out his life for you and you turned from that sin. And so I want us to see what is it like in Sodom and Gomorrah as we get ready to read this passage. Sodom and Gomorrah was a place full of this sin. We'll read it in just a moment of homosexuality. But more than that, if you go beyond homosexuality, also, this is a place full of injustice towards the weak, full of violence. People that did not value human life. They did not value human freedom. You're going to see that clearly as we read Genesis 19. In fact, twice, once in Genesis 18, once in Genesis 19, it speaks about these people as, as these voices have come up to God. Cries have come up to God against these people. But what does it mean? You remember over in Genesis 4, you had Cain killed Abel and the blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground. It's the innocent ones. It's the victims that have been violently murdered in this place. That their freedom has been stripped from them. Their life's been taken away. It's a place full of injustice. And if you want to go even broader than that, Ezekiel 16, 49, it says this about them. It says, this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, and did not aid the poor and needy. That sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? To the place in which we live. And so here's these people full of pride and prosperous ease, homosexuality, injustice. It's rampant in this culture. This is Sodom and Gomorrah that God aims to destroy. To wipe, to wipe from the earth. Second question, who is Lot? Lot is Abraham's nephew who made a very unwise decision in Genesis 13 that he would move close to Sodom. He's a very unimpressive man and his life is full of contradictions. You read about this man's life and it is absolutely slap full of contradictions. Just for example, he seems to be a righteous man like Abraham. Okay, And what I mean is he has the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ on his life like Abraham. You go read 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8. And it says three times righteous Lot, his righteous soul, that righteous man. So here's this seeming, it seems like a contradiction. This man who has the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ upon him. And yet you read about his life and it looks like it is slap full. Of unrighteousness and ungodliness. It seems there's a contradiction in this man's life. He seems to be a bad example to us. Another example. On one level we, leave, we read in 2 Peter 2 verse 6. That he is disgusted and tormented by the sin that he sees all around him. His eyes weep because of those who break God's law. And yet at the same time we see his behavior look in a lot of ways like Sodom. So he's tormented by their sin, yet he walks in their sin. It's a conflicted man with a contradicting life. That's this man Lot. Also in Genesis 19, we're going to see him. He's going to risk his life to try to protect those who come into his home. And in the same moment, in the same breath, he willingly will give up his daughters, disregarding their safety and their purity. What is this contradiction of a life? We'll also see Lot pleading with men to flee from the coming judgment, yet he himself, he'll linger. And he won't flee from the coming judgment. So Lot is a man full of contradictions. Now, next week, 
We're going to dig a little bit deeper into Lot's wife as we read the final, pretty much the final chapter, the final mention of his life in the Bible altogether. So we'll dig into that more next week. Third question for context here. Who is Abraham? Abraham's name is going to appear at the end of Genesis 19 here. Who is Abraham? Abraham is the one through whom is coming the seed, the promised seed. In other words, God, as sin has entered the world and mankind deserves destruction, God promised that there's one coming, a seed, a Messiah, a Christ, who would save the world, Jesus Christ. And he specifically said to Abraham, Abraham, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. In other words, Abraham, that one that's coming is coming through your lineage, through your seed. And Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One's name is Judah. Judah eventually has a great, great grandson named David. David has a son named Solomon. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam has a line of kings that eventually leads up to Jesus Christ, the one who would come to rescue the one that will come to save. So he is the one through whom is coming the promised seed. The New Testament also puts Abraham forward as the one to be imitated. That we would imitate this man all throughout the New Testament. So what should we imitate about Abraham? Abraham's a man of faith. He's obviously not perfect. If you've been with us, you know that Abraham is not perfect. But he's growing in his faith. He's a man of faith. He's also a friend of God. Abraham's called the friend of God. Last chapter, Genesis 18, God revealed his will. He revealed his plan to Abraham to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because he's a friend of God. He's a friend of God. Abraham is also an intercessor. He's an intercessor. You know what? Do you know what intercessory prayer is? You know what intercessory prayer is? What's what Abraham did in Genesis 18? It says in Genesis 18, Abraham stood before the Lord. So intercessory prayer is standing before God on behalf of another. Standing before God on behalf of another. Am I too loud, Jay? Sorry, brother. I get excited, John. Thank you, brother. Intercessory prayer is standing before God on behalf of another. And that's what we see Abraham. He's an intercessor. He was a man of intercessory prayer, which seems to be a rare breed today. Men of intercessory prayer. I heard one man say we got a lot of people on the Internet, but, uh, but very few in intercession. Ezekiel 22 verse 30 says that God, God sought for a man among them who would build a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Don't let that be, don't let that be, that be the, the, the case on your watch. Fourth question here, who are the two angels? When we read 19 verse 1, it says, the two angels. So where did these two angels come from? They just pop out of nowhere, right? These two angels. So we've got Sodom and Gomorrah, we've got Lot, we've got Abraham, but who are these two angels that are mentioned here? These two angels, are, are they appear... To everybody else around him, including Lot and the people of Sodom, they appear as mere men. And yet they're angels sent by God to Sodom to destroy that place. Now, if you go back into Genesis 18 and do a careful, re careful reading there, you've got three men show up to Abraham. And we know from Genesis 18 that one of those three is the Lord. And then at the end of Genesis 18, two of those men go to Sodom while 
the Lord stands with Abraham. Abraham stands before the Lord. And next thing we know is they move into Sodom in Genesis 19. They're called two angels. And throughout Genesis 19, they'll be called those men. Those men, but they're going to reveal themselves to be ones who have come to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. These are these two, these two angels. So let's read our text of Scripture kind of passage by passage here. So I want to start off by reading verses 1 through 3 where Lot meets these two angels. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. And so here we see Lot meets these two angels. We've got Lot here. He's sitting in the gate of Sodom. It says he's, we find him here sitting in the gates. And that's usually, that usually insinuates some sort of official role that he has in Sodom. Official leadership that he has in Sodom. Which means this man is now immersed in this culture. He's absolutely immersed in Sodom. Which is it's interesting, right? Because it all started with one look. You remember Genesis 13? Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw. And he saw something that he desired. He saw something that he liked. Next thing you know in Genesis 13, it says he pitches his tent close to Sodom. So he's near Sodom. Genesis 14, he's living in Sodom. And now we come to Genesis 19. And he's immersed in this culture, sitting in the gates in a prominent place. He's a man of Sodom. Lot sees these two men. And his response is very similar to Abraham. If you compare Abraham's response to seeing the three men in Genesis 18, which included these two angels, and you, and you see Lot's response, it looks very, very similar in the way they treat these men. They bring them into their home. They feed them with a feast. They take care of them. All right, go with me to verse 4 through 11 now. We're going to see the Sodomites attack Lot and these two angels. Verse 4. But before they lay down, okay, so get your timing right. This is somewhere between dinner and bedtime. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now that word and the context and the way it's used here is clear that he's talking about knowing them sexually. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So it sounds virtuous. Lot's putting his life on the line. He's protecting these people that have come into his home. It sounds virtuous, but any virtue is about to be swallowed up with a very wicked, wicked, a monstrous act. In verse 8, verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men 
for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands as the angels. They reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they were themselves. They wore themselves out, groping, groping for the door. Try to set your mind here sometime between dinner and bedtime. An event happens that shows the wickedness of this city. And the, and the contradictions of this man called Lot. The contradictions of his life. The wickedness of the city. Literally all the men in the city have surrounded Lot's house. Can you imagine that? All the men, young and old, surrounded his, his house with these, with these lust of the flesh. These homosexual lusts towards these men. And they're willing to rape these men. They're willing to do violence to these men to fulfill their desires. It's a wicked, wicked scene. Lot's contradictions. We see Lot stand up to protect these men. And yet at the same time, just this, this monstrous neglect of his fatherly duty to protect his daughter's purity in their lives. And so how do the men respond to Lot? They turn on him. They turn on Lot. In fact, they give Lot sort of an ancient version of who are you to judge us? They say this man came here to sojourn and now he's become the judge. Why are you judging us? Kind of an ancient version of that. Then they begin to move violently toward Lot. And as they press in towards Lot, as he's at the door of his house, the angels suddenly, they do something. They, they blow their cover. They seem like mere men. But now all of a sudden they grab Lot, yank him in the house, and they strike these men with blindness, which, ev which eventually ends the sexual assault. So these guys have revealed themselves to be something special, more than mere men. Go to verse 12. Verse 12 and 14. 12 to 14. Then the men said to Lot. That's the angels. They said to Lot. Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against this people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law sons who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place! For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Or to be joking. To be just playing. So right here we see Lot is informed for the first time. Now Lot knows the intention of these two men, of these two angels being here. Lot knows now that this city is about to be obliterated. He knows that judgment's coming to this city, to this town. And so here we see Lot's given an opportunity. He's given uh, 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 some time, an opportunity to go warn other people that judgment's coming. Get out of here. He's given a chance to go warn them. I think this is a wonderful illustration of evangelism for us. I think it's a wonderful picture, at least the scene. Not necessarily what Lot did, but the scene in and of itself is a wonderful picture for us of evangelism. Especially when you realize that the judgment that's coming down with Sodom and Gomorrah 
We'll talk about this in a minute. Is meant to be a picture to us of the final judgment which is to come. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But if you know that, then this is a, a, good, a good picture to us of evangelism. So what was Lot commanded to do? Warn the people of a coming judgment. Warn them of the wrath to come. Warn them of the imminent danger. Let them know. You got to tell them. Now, I want you to think about your evangelism for a moment. Okay? Now, what if Lot would have went down door to door, knocking on doors? Okay? And he just kind of opened the door and said, Hey, I just want you to let you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And then he moves on. Would that be love from Lot to these people? No. Why? Because Lot, Lot, you know that judgment's coming here. You know that the fire's about to rain down from heaven. You've got to warn them, man. You've got to get them out of here. Would it, would it have been okay for Lot just to remain silent and say, Look, you know what? I don't want to offend anybody with all this guilty and sin and judgment talk, warning them. I don't want to offend anybody, so I'm just going to remain quiet and, and, you know, it's up to them. Would that have been love for Lot? Absolutely not. Lot, their judgment is coming to this place. You've got to tell them. You've got to let them know. So it's a sweet picture to me of evangelism. Notice that, that all Lot does to his sons-in-law is he takes the message that he was delivered. Judgment's coming to this place. And he delivers that exact message to his sons-in-law. Up, oh, get out of here. Because judgment's coming to this place. It's about to be destroyed. It's a good picture of evangelism. Is that a part of your evangelism? Is that a part of your evangelism? It would make total sense. It just makes sense that, that, that Lot, like a crazy man, would be beating down doors saying, Get out of here. You've got to flee the wrath to come. Is that a part of your evangelism? How much more does it make sense when you think about not just a judgment on the city, but the eternal hellfire judgment that is coming down. It's about to rain down on the earth. How much more does it make sense to warn them about what's to come? In Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33, we are called watchmen. We watch out for danger that's coming. And when we see it, we warn the people. And he says that if you see the danger coming, you hear the warning from my mouth. If you tell the people and they hear you, good. If they don't hear you, the blood's on their own hands. But he says if you hear the warning and you don't tell the people, when they die, the blood's going to be on your hands. It's the reason why Paul in the New Testament would say he had preached it everywhere and his hands were clean from the blood of all men. That's where he was getting that from. Let me real quick encourage you with a verse from Micah chapter 3 verse 8. Listen to this. Because I know that might sound strange to some. But I really want you to be encouraged that part of your evangelism is a warning about judgment to come and a confrontation of sin. Micah 3.8 says this. I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. And of course, I'm reading that in my normal reading. And, I, and man, that draws me in. I want to be filled with power in the Spirit of God. To do what? And the end of that verse says, To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And that makes sense, right? That, that what this verse shows me is that we need the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to declare into a lost world the judgment to come, to warn them, to tell them of their sin. 
If all you do is walk around in your life and just give an uplifting little comments, it's just, all it is is uplifting. I don't necessarily, we, you don't necessarily see the need for the power of the Spirit of God to help you. But if you're going to be one that walks in that confrontation with this world over its sin and warns about the judgment to come, you need the boldness of the Holy Spirit. And you need the love of the Holy Spirit to be able to do it with gentleness and kindness. You need the Spirit of God. This encouraged me that this is even offered us in Christ. And our evangelism, that we can be filled with the Spirit of God and His power to declare to the world their transgression and their sin. So Lot does that at least with his sons-in-law, and they think he's joking. They just think that he's jesting, and so they don't flee. They don't get out of there because they just think he's joking. Now, either, either that's a sign of the way so much of the world deals with the warnings of God's Word. Most men deal lightly. They take God's warnings lightly all the way to hell. So either it's a sign of that, it's just the normal way people take God's warnings, or it could be a, a, a slight on, on, on Lot's character. That his character didn't line up in such a way that when he spoke this warning, that it actually landed with some weight. I think that also would speak to our evangelism. Do our lives line up in such a way so that it's fitting and when we give the warning, people take us seriously. Let's go to verse 15. Now what we're going to see here is Lot's told to flee Sodom right here in verses 15 through 22. Now these warnings that Lot was given, at least to his sons-in-law, were given in the middle of the night. And then the next morning, this comes in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Sometimes that's what the mercy of God looks like. God, outside of our will, forcibly grabs us and snatches us out of something. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords, behold, your servants found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this, this city is near enough to flee to. And it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. It's called Zoar. So what we see here in this passage of scriptures, we see Lot's continued foolishness and the contradictions of his life. And at the same time, you see great, great mercy being poured out on this man named Lot. You say, what do you mean? Well, Lot is commanded to flee with his wife and his two daughters. That's the mercy of God telling him, Lot, get out of here. Flee the wrath to come. And yet you see Lot's foolishness because it says he lingers. He lingers. He hesitates. But then again, you see God's mercy because he gets his angels to actually grab them, pick them up, remove them outside of the city, and then charge them again. Get out of here. 
It even says the Lord being merciful to them. It's the mercy of God. And then what do you see Lot do? Again, Lot hesitates. He shows his distrust. He shows his disobedience. He begins to ask, well, you know, instead of going here, can I go here? What nerve? What a fool. And yet you see his foolishness. And then God, again, in unthinkable mercy says, I grant you this favor also. Go to Zoar. God even spares the whole city because Lot goes there. He spares Zoar for Lot's sake. So here in this passage, we see Lot's foolishness, but God's mercy to him. We'll come back to some of that in just a minute. Go to verse 23. Now, verse 23 through 26. This is this is uh, so, uh, Sodom's judgment here. We're going to see the judgment of God. Now, this is a this is seriously this is a horrific scene, and I want you to see it that way. You know, sometimes people ask that question. They say, hey, if you could like be anywhere in the Bible, you know, you could like be an eyewitness to any like event in the Bible. Where would you go? Nobody ever picks this place. Nobody ever says Noah's flood. I want to see people drowning till they can't breathe, banging on the, the, uh, the arch door to try to get in and then dying forever. They never say that. They never say, hey, you know what? I want to see that rich man. You know, the, the rich man that died and we get the picture of him being in hell forever. And he's tormented in the flame. Nobody ever says, that's where I want to go. And in the same way, nobody ever says, I want to see Sodom and Gomorrah and, and the skin burned off of people as they die in this place. Nobody ever wants to see this. It's a gruesome, gruesome scene. Look at verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord. The older versions say fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities. I mean, all the people died. And what grew on the ground, the flames sucked up the grass and the trees, all the vegetation but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Even Lot's wife didn't make it. And the picture there is probably not she just glanced back and died. The picture there is she lingered. She, she was hanging back. She loved the things of the world. She loved Sodom. She hangs back and she's swallowed up in the judgment of the city and becomes a pillar of salt just like the rest. Now it's possible to read that passage of scripture and not realize the horrors of what you just read, what you just heard. It's possible just to pass by, kind of like when you, when you read the Gospels and you come to Jesus' death and it says, and they crucified Him. And that's it. It just says they crucified Him. And it's so easy to read past that and miss the horrors of what was happening in that moment. That He was pinned to the tree. That He couldn't breathe. He's grasping up on the, the holes in His skin just to try to get air. Not to mention the wrath of God being poured out on Him at the cross. You just read past it. In the same way, it's easy just to read past how horrific this is. Imagine it. Imagine these people. God has just rained down sulfur and fire from heaven to destroy these people. This is burning. Imagine the pain. Smoke inhalation and screams. Your, your screams going out as your skin is being burned off your bones. Can you imagine this? Men, women, and children, screams going out, desperate cries that will never be answered. The pain, the sharp pain just before you die. 
You imagine this scene. Imagine how horrific it is. The, the, the smell of burning flesh. I read uh, in the news recently about the, it's called the Greenfield, Greenfield, maybe is how you say it, Tower in London. Anybody read about that? Nobody read about that? And so you imagine in London, you got these high rises that go up everywhere. And one of those high rises is this Grenfell Towers apartments where these people live. Hundreds of people live here. And this thing goes up in flames. And you should hear the stories of these people as it goes up in flames. Eighty people died in that place. And the people in the adjacent buildings remember. I mean, they have, they, you know, speak about having nightmares about hearing the screams coming from that building. It literally went on for two straight hours as the building got consumed. One lady with tears. It speaks about seeing people appearing before the window, just beating down the window, screaming out for their life as they're burned up. Children being thrown out the window in hopes that maybe they'll live. Burning people on fire, jumping out of the building in hopes that maybe they'll survive the impact. And you imagine, that's one building where people live, where 80 people die. Can you imagine cities, all the cities of the valley in this place, fire come down from heaven and consume these people. It's a horrific scene. Now one question is very, very important for you to ask is why? Why did God do it this way? Why this horrific, terrible, painful, scary death? Why this? God could have just, He could have just taken their breath away in a moment, right? Uh, uh, just a quick, peaceful death and these people are gone. So why does God rain down fire, burning fire from heaven? Why does He do that? Why this sort, this sort of gruesome, uh, gruesome and excruciating death? And here's the answer. This is important that you understand this. The answer is this. Because God is giving a clear warning to all of us that this is how God is going to judge all of the ungodly one day. All of them. All of the ungodly will be judged in a gruesome, terrible manner such as what we read right here in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you say, how do you know that? How do you know it's a picture? Are you just saying it's a picture or you know it's a picture? I know it's a picture because the Holy Spirit told me it was a picture. And He told me that in the book that He wrote. 2 Peter chapter 2. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2. You can flip there if you like. I'm going to read verse 6. Second Peter 2 6 says this. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Did you catch it? Sodom and Gomorrah. When you see it, when you read about it, and, and the, the gruesomeness of those deaths come flooding into your mind, almost bring you to tears, what it's supposed to be pointing you to is this is how God's going to deal with all of the ungodly. It's an example that's given for us. In other words, something more horrific than Sodom and Gomorrah is coming, and it's the final judgment. Not just the judgment of a city. A judgment of the world. So Sodom and Gomorrah is like a signpost reminding us of the judgment which is to come. The eternal fire which is to come. Some people will say this. Some people will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, uh, burning down cities, 
you know, uh, Lot's wife being turned to ash all of a sudden. That's just the God of the Old Testament, right? Right? I mean, doesn't he in the New Testament like conform to us, like become more like us? You know, taking sin lightly and not worrying about judgment. Isn't that how he is in the New Testament? And I hope the resounding answer all across this room is no, that's not right. Don't you remember Acts 5 when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead? Don't you remember Acts 12 when Herod is eaten by worms and dies because he lies before God? Don't you remember Revelation chapter 6 where it says the wrath of the Lamb has come? The Lamb, the one who was slaughtered in our place, the gentle Lamb of God who died in our place, who laid down His life for us. There's coming a time when it's called the day of the wrath of the Lamb has come. And it said mighty men and all people on the earth are going to be fleeing from the wrath of the Lamb saying, please, please hide us from His wrath. We can't stand before Him. God wants us to know this about Himself. I think Satan's aim, one of Satan's aim is to make us think very light thoughts about judgment and about hellfire. You know, God's not that angry. God's not all that angry. He's not all that mad. I think Satan's tactic is to make you think lightly about that. And that trick from Satan leads people to hell because they don't flee the wrath to come. They see no urgency. That trick leads to sloppy evangelism I were talking about a moment ago. Of this God loves you, has a wonderful purpose for your life, rather than telling them of sin and the judgment to come in Christ who was crucified for them. This trick from Satan to lighten the judgment in your mind, to make him seem not quite that angry. It's a trick that makes for it makes for sloppy Christian living. Think about that verse of scripture says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. Why? He says, because it's better you to go to, life, to enter into life maimed than to go to hell with two hands. There's got to be a place for that command in your life that you think like that. You can't say, hey, you know what, I'm not going to hell because I... No, that command is for you. Your hand calls you sin, cut it off so you don't go to hell. But Satan wants to demean the judgment to come. The wrath of God. So Satan's doing that, but God's doing just the opposite. Think about it. We're only 19 chapters into Genesis, and three of the major judgments of God have already fallen. Genesis 19, right here, Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 6 through 9, Noah's flood, where everybody's destroyed but eight people. And then the one that, that, that is behind the scenes, where God poured out judgment on the angels and cast them in chains of death forever. In fact, you go read 2 Peter chapter 2, that verse we read a moment ago. In fact, I'm right here. I'm going to read it. Verse 4, listen to those three examples. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So if God did that, that judgment. Number two, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserve Noah, if that judgment. And number three. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extension, that, that judgment, if, 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 then what? Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. We're only 19 chapters in. God, Satan's trying to demean in your minds the judgment and the wrath of God is to come. And God's trying to help you see, this is what I'm like. I am a just judge. He's going to pour out wrath on the wicked. 
So here's the question. What does, if Sodom and Gomorrah is meant to make us think about the wrath to come, what are some things that as we think about Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment that fell there, what are some things that we're supposed to understand and know about the eternal judgment that's coming? And let me give you a few of these. Number one, Sodom was a judgment of fire. It's a judgment of fire. And so will the eternal judgment be. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the arrogant, they'll be consumed in it. It says he will set them ablaze. He'll set them ablaze. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. It says, everlasting punishment. He'll say, depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. It speaks this way about Jesus' second coming. It says, in flaming fire... Fire, he will rain down vengeance on those who don't know him. And those who don't obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the majesty of God and the glory of his power. Everlasting punishment as he comes in flaming fire. fire. Revelation 20 verse 15 says, Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. The torments of fire you see come down in Sodom and Gomorrah are meant to be a mini picture of what's to come in that judgment of fire that, that is to come. It's called torment day and night forever and ever in the lake of fire. What else can we learn? Number two, at Sodom we saw God's vengeance on these people. That was God's vengeance. Okay? Genesis 19, verse 24, it says, The Lord rained down sulfur and fire from heaven. The Lord did that. The Lord did that. And just like it was God's vengeance then, so is the final judgment. In other words, hell is not the devil's hell. It would actually be better for sinners if the hell belonged to the devil. But rather, hell is God's vengeance, God's judgment. Imagine that. The one that holds the stars in his hand is going to press down for all of eternity in wrath on those who disobey his gospel. Number three, Sodom's judgment was sudden. And it was unexpected. And in the same way, the final judgment will be sudden. And it will be, be unexpected. Look at Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. I'm going to read verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, how was it? They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. I think sometimes we feel no urgency about the sudden, unexpected coming of the judgment of God because we let Satan's ways and tactics get into our minds and hearts. But it's wrong. It's coming suddenly. Are you ready for it? I was thinking, what, what must it be like to... One moment you're here, and then in a flash, next moment, you're in hell. One moment you're here, boom, next moment, 
You're in hell. Judgment of fire forever. Number four. In Sodom's judgment, the majority of the people were swallowed up in the fire. And even so in the final one. The final judgment, it will be the majority. The majority that go to eternal fire. Now here's the problem. Nobody thinks they're going to hell. Nobody. Nobody thinks they're going to hell. I'm fine. Nobody thinks they're going to hell. So what does that mean? That means there's people that think they're okay, but they're not okay. That that day is going to come all of a sudden and they're going to find themselves in a place they never wanted to be. And it's just a reality. In Noah's flood, in that judgment, eight people survived. Sodom and Gomorrah, three people survived. And Jesus said the way to destruction is broad. Many people go that way, but the way to life is narrow and few people find it. Nobody thinks they're going there. Nobody wants to go there. But listen to me. People are deceived again and again and again. Hell is being filled up with people that didn't know they were going there. It swallows up the majority. Fifth. Sodom's judgment is... It's meant to draw our attention to the eternality of the, etern- of the coming judgment. Sodom's judgment is supposed to draw our attention to the eternal nature, the forever and ever and ever nature of hell. Okay? Let me read this verse to you in Jude. I've referenced it already, but I just want to read it to you in Jude chapter 7. Listen. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example... By undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Eternal fire. Now this might be the hardest piece to swallow. This might be the hardest one to to allow it to sink into your ears and meditate on it for just a moment. The most terrifying of all is that hell is eternal. It has no end. Linda Ravenhill said there are a million roads to hell, but no way out. Hell has no exits. People pray in hell and no one ever answers. We know that from Luke 16, right? We see the man in hell and he's pleading for something, but no one ever answers him. People thirst in hell and their their thirst is never quenched, ever. People retain their memories in hell. They They retain their memories... And, and, and it'll torment them for all of eternity. You'll remember every single moment that you heard the gospel, that you heard the truth, that someone pled with you to come to Christ. And you'll remember how simple it is to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet you reject it. It'll torment you for all of eternity. Ten million years into hell and you will still cry out, I'm tormented in this flame. Oh, that I just had a drop of water to be put on my tongue for just a moment of comfort and it'll never come. It'll never come. We ought to weep. We ought to weep about this description in God's word of hell. People will long to die in hell. Or at least they will long to cease to exist. But it will not be granted to them. Their misery will never stop. Can you imagine that? Being in a state where you take the gun to the head Pull the trigger thinking you're going to end your misery, but just realize you're still in hell. It never stops. Revelation 20 says, tormented day and night forever and ever. And it's talking about Satan. 
tormented day and night forever and ever. And it says, we'll go into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25. Now, I think sometimes we can get caught up in such a broad swath of thinking about the multitudes that we don't take this personal. And here's what I mean. I want us to take this personal, the judgment which is to come. Personal as in realizing and thinking about these are real people in hell. It's real. And it happens to individuals with faces and lives and children and parents. And Think about the sons-in-laws. Lot goes to his sons-in-law and he goes to them and he pleads with them to flee and they don't flee. And guess what? They are in hell right now. As we speak, you can't see their faces. You've never seen them. But if you did, you would know that those faces are in hell right now, tormented day and night forever and ever. But what about Lot's wife? Think about Lot's wife. She, she had access to more truth than anybody had on the planet at that time. She knew Abraham. She knew Lot. She knew about the one who was to come. Her husband was righteous because of belief in Christ. And yet she burns in hell right now as we speak. I was thinking about the world celebrating, even celebrating Hugh Hefner's life this week. September 27th, 2017, Hugh Hefner saw God. And unless something... And unless something... With repentance happening that I don't know about. He's burning forever in hell. It's a real thing. And, I, and, and I, I'd have to be lying if I didn't say I'm not concerned. As I look across this room. So many people I love. A lot of people I know well. Some that I don't know that well. That I'm not concerned. The people in this room would be like Lot's wife. And you hear truth and truth and truth and truth. And yet you go to hell forever. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't concerned about that. And I'm not praying God please. Please let the fear of God fall on these people that don't know you and let them come to you. Don't let them be like these other people that burn in hell now. One more thing I think we can learn about Sodom's judgment and the judgment to come. And this is glorious news. Lot got out. Lot made it out. Lot does not, he's not burning in hell forever. He's not going to hell. He's free from the wrath to come. How? How Lot be free from the wrath to come? Same way Abraham was. It's an imputed righteousness. Abraham believed in the Lord and God accounted it to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham knew about that one coming. Jesus Christ, who would die for sinners, lay down his life to be the rescuer, raised from the dead. And whoever puts their hope in him can be saved. Abraham and Lot look forward to Christ. We look back to the one who has already died for us. We can be set free from the judgment that's coming. And that's a beautiful thing to take. From the, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's finish this out. I believe that's the main thing you need to see from the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. But let's finish out these verses. Genesis 19. <clears throat> Verse 27. And Abraham. I told you he was coming. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place... Where he had stood before the Lord. Remember Abraham was standing before God. Interceding in Genesis 18. Well he goes to bed that night. While Lot's you know, warning the sons-in-law. 
And he wakes up and he goes right back to that place where he was interceding. Try to put yourself in Abraham's shoes. He goes out to that place where he stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. He had been pleading for that man. Oh God, if there's 50 righteous, should not the judge of all the earth be right? If there's 50 righteous, would you spare them? Yeah, I'll spare them. If there's 40, would you spare them? Yeah, I'll spare them. 30, 20, 10. And now he looks up and he sees the smoke going up like a furnace. This place has been obliterated, destroyed. God's done what he said he would do. Verse 29. So it was that God destroyed the cities of the valley. Excuse me. When God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And here's what I want you to see here. Abraham's intercession in Genesis 18 is very clearly connected to Lot's deliverance. Do you see that? Look at verse 29. Look at it. When God destroyed the cities of the valley, listen, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. They're connected. God has Abraham's prayers on his mind. The prayers, the intercession of Abraham is right here. And in light of that, he delivers Lot from the overthrow. They're connected. The intercession of Abraham. And therefore, he delivers Lot from this destruction. Now, you think about that because that's a powerful, powerful view of intercessory prayer. Think, think about the different scenes and what we just read, okay? The angels save Lot from the Sodomites. Remember that? Drag him back into the house and strike the Sodomites down with blindness. What was that? Abraham's prayers were on God's mind and God was delivering Abraham. What about the next thing? Why did they warn Lot to flee? Why did they tell him to flee? Because the prayers of Abraham are in God's mind and he delivers Lot. He tells him to flee. When Lot lingers and he hesitates and it says God being merciful to him, he picks him up and takes him out of the city. Why is God doing that? The prayers of Abraham are right here and God delivers Lot. It's a powerful picture of intercessory prayer. Consider this phrase in verse 22. Verse 22. Escape there quickly. The angel says to Lot, escape there quickly. Listen to this. For I can do nothing... Till you arrive there. Intercessory prayer that stops the actions of angels. The angel says, I can't do anything until you get to where you're supposed to be. Abraham's prayer from God's mind. God's halting angels. God's delivering Lot. God's showing mercy to him. You see the power and the effectiveness of intercessory prayer in Abraham's life? Going to God in intercessory prayer is a powerful and effective business for the child of God. Are you doing it? Are you interceding? Are you interceding? Who are you interceding for continually right now? Who? Are you interceding for the church right now? Do you see the power of it here? Are, are you interceding for lost people? What lost people? Are you going before the throne of grace saying, God save their souls. God deliver them from judgment to come. If every person that you are consistently inter interceding for daily for the past month was saved tomorrow, who would be saved? Are you interceding? Are you an intercessor? 
What hinders us from being intercessors like Abraham here? I'll just give you a few things that hinders people. Maybe one is this. Well, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what God's will is. Listen, neither did Abraham. The, the answer to his prayer was God's delivering lot. Abraham never even prayed that. He's praying 50 and 40 and 30 and 20 and 10. Never even mentions his name. Abraham doesn't exactly know what to pray, but God responds to that intercession and delivers lot. Or maybe somebody says this, well, I'm not seeing the immediate fruit. I, I tried to pray, but I'm not seeing the immediate uh, fruit of my intercession. Neither did Abraham. You imagine him standing there and he sees the smoke of the land rising up. All he knows is I guess nobody there was righteous. He has no idea that things are happening with Lot down in the valley. I think ultimately we don't pray in intercession because of unbelief. And my hope is that as you think about this connection, Abraham's intercession connected to, to Lot's deliverance, I hope that will build your faith and encourage you that we might be a people, Grace Community Church, that we'd be a people that over and over and over again, day by day, night by night, go to God in intercessory prayer for each other and for the lost world. That you have faces and names in your head that you cry, oh God, save them. Save them, Lord. Open their eyes. Let them see. I think as Christians, we're called to do many, many things, but one of the most basic has got to be win lost souls with your prayers. I want to pray for us that we better do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Again, thank you, Lord. And God, I just want to bring before you this example of, of intercessory prayer here. And God, as we think about the terrors of hell, the horrors of hell, God, stir our souls to pray for the lost. God, I pray that all across this room, all throughout this church, God, that you would stir up our souls, stir up our hearts, God, to pray. God, kill our unbelief. Please kill our unbelief, Lord. Kill our distrust in you. And fill us with faith, Lord, that you could do with us just as you did with Abraham. God, I pray you teach us what it is to go to that secret place of prayer and call out to you, Lord, day after day after day. God, don't let us grow weary in it. Build up our faith, Lord. God, I pray for us as a church, God, in different places where we pray together corporately on Sundays and in our homes, God. Lord, fill our hearts with, with cries to you, Lord. Let, teach us to pour out our souls to you in prayer. God, it's not the prayers that are powerful. We know that it's you. You're powerful. God, please help us, Lord, to not think lightly about judgment and hell. About the wrath to come. God, we acknowledge this, the tactics of Satan. The schemes of the evil one, God. To lower and lighten our thoughts about those things. Please, God, don't let it happen. Wake us up, God. Put eternity right before our eyes, Lord. And God, I pray the realities of hell, the realities of eternal torment and judgment, God, would be on us with an urgency. And God, from that place of urgency, please, Lord, send us out as your messengers to preach your glorious gospel to a lost world. And God, save many souls. Answer those prayers of intercession, God. And let many souls come to you. Lord, if there's any here today that don't know you, Lord, that are headed for hell, if there are any here today, Lord, that are like Lot's wife with a mind full of truth, but headed to hell, 
God, please wake them up. God, any urge that they feel in them even now to bow down to You, to, to turn around their lives, go out, God, and follow You, I pray, Lord, that nothing would stop it, Lord. They walk, for, they walk after You with all their heart. God, I pray they deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow You daily. I love You, Lord. And we love You in Jesus' name. Amen.